This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to The World Today. I'm Sally Sara. This Monday, the rise of independence in the federal election. Can they unseat the major parties? And the cruise ship industry returns after two years of COVID bans and uncertainty. But how long will it take for tourism operators to fully recover? The cruise ship market is very limited now as most of the clients on board are mostly Australians. And cruise market, oh gosh, I loved it. It was amazing business for us. But Australians just aren't my clients. First up today, as the federal election campaign enters its second week, the importance of independent candidates is growing. From Wentworth to Goldstein, North Sydney, Curtin and beyond, the independents are pushing for their share of the vote. We will take you to one of those seats in a moment, but first, the ABC's election analyst, Anthony Green. There's three basic steps in an independent winning. One is to force the major party, in this case nearly all Liberals, force their vote, first preference vote, under 45. Then you've got to get your vote up above 30. Now, the lower you force the Liberal vote, the higher your own vote, the less you depend on preferences. But the third step is to get strong flows of preferences. And it's pretty, it's certain that Labor and the Greens, there will be strong flow of preferences to independents in those Liberal seats. Which are the, are the tightest uh, seats in terms of the, the ones that the independents are challenging in? The ones to keep the greatest in is Wentworth, which has been won by independents before. You have um, North Sydney, Warringah, which is currently held by an independent, is probably in no danger. Warringah, McKellar, I've got strong independence in, in Sydney. In Melbourne, you've got Goldstein and um, Kuyong, the treasurer's seat. Uh, again, the same equation there, forced the Liberal vote down under 45. The other one to watch would probably be Curtin in Western Australia. Again, a safe Liberal seat, but a very strong candidate in Kate Cheney, who will be, uh, you know, the Liberal Party's got problems in Western Australia hanging over from the state election. So they're, they're all possibilities. We do know that the Liberal Party is having to spend a lot of money in those contests, which they don't normally do. A lot of the focus has been on what these independents will mean for the coalition's chances, but what do they mean for Labor? Well, it's the same equation. Labor, if, if Labor can't get a majority, you've got the crossbench. I mean, if, if there is a hung parliament, that gives you a better negotiating position with the crossbench. But um, n- none of these seats are seats where Labor is in danger. There's one or two independents that have popped up in Labor seat, Fowler in Western Sydney, where a popular local councillor is running against uh, Christina Keneally. But most of them have popped up in coalition seats. And so while they're, they're not a threat to Labor, but they make it... If it's a close parliament, it means that they're more likely to end up with the balance of power. They're more of a problem for the coalition. What does the coalition need to do to thread the needle to get across the line in this election? What's the most important parts of the country for it? Well, it has to hold its seats in Queensland and Western Australia. They're, they're difficult to do given the size of the number of, you know, Queensland, they already hold 23 of the of the 30 seats and in Western Australia, given the wipeout that occurred at the last state election, the Liberal Party's got some institutional weaknesses over there and a very popular Labor Premier. But, I mean, if um, the one thing the government's always wanted to do is to run against Anthony Albanese, not the Premier's. And the more the election campaign focuses on Anthony Albanese, the more confidence I think the Liberal Party would feel in Western Australia. Beyond that, 
New South Wales is the sort of state where if it tends to move, you get lots of seats shift. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for both sides to gain seats in New South Wales. Less so in Victoria, where the battlegrounds tend to be sort of a bit more clearly defined. There's only one or two seats, which you'd say would be really in play. And then there's only a small number of seats to Braddon and Bass in Tasmania, Boothby in South Australia. So I think it's, in, in, it's Queensland and Western Australia first, can the coalition hold its seats and then what happens in New South Wales, the other states are more, if it ends up pretty close, then every seat will count in every state. What does the map look like for Labor? Where does it need to do well? It needs to hold everything it's got in in New South Wales and gain seats from the Liberal Party. There's a couple of seats it can gain. Again, Bass and Braddon, Chisholm in, in Victoria. But uh, really, the battleground, the big battlegrounds, Queensland, Western Australia and New South Wales. Does it seem to you that the independents could play a bigger role this time than previously in the way that it shifts the campaign and the result? Well, they could. They could. I mean, if they win seats, they will have a bigger impact. But the overall makeup of who formed governments partly depends on the results in the rest of the country. Before the campaign, when polls were looking bad for the government, you would have said, well, they may not be important. But um, Labor's had a rocky first week of the campaign. And it now is, you know, it's possible maybe the government will get a majority, maybe it will be a hung parliament. But uh, I think the closer the election is, the more independent, the more important the independents are. That's the ABC's elections analyst, Anthony Green, there. Well, let's take a look at the seat of Wentworth in Sydney's eastern suburbs. This election, the Liberal member, Dave Sharma, is in a close contest with independent candidate Allegra Spender. And some political commentators liken it to the election battle in Warringah in 2019 when independent Zali Stegall beat the long-time Liberal member and former PM Tony Abbott. But does it pose a threat to the coalition's chances at this election? And is the party able to cater to its voting base? Kat Gregory takes a look. Wentworth is one of the wealthiest electorates in the country, taking in Sydney's eastern beaches and some leafy elite suburbs. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull even held the helm there for many years. But in this election campaign, the once safe Liberal seat is facing a significant contest. The issue that most people are asking for is they want someone who truly represents their community on issues and is willing to vote on those issues. That's independent candidate Allegra Spender, who is only a nose behind the sitting Liberal member Dave Sharma, according to a University of Canberra poll. These are issues like climate change and integrity, as well as a future-focused economy. And what the real difference for for me and, and my opponent is that I'm willing to vote and advocate on the issues that Wentworth sees as important. Not when it comes to it, say one thing, but then come go to Canberra and vote on party lines. Allegra Spender is the daughter of the late fashion designer Carla Zampatti and a businesswoman with strong traditional family ties to the Liberal Party. But she says that party is no longer delivering for her community. You know, when I look at Wentworth, I think it's one of the most socially progressive electorates in the country, as seen by the, the plebiscite on, on marriage equality. It's one of the most environmentally focused electorates in the country because people live here because they love the natural world. And also it's very economically focused and, and business oriented. I can go to Canberra and actually represent those values, vote on those values, not vote on you know what the nationals are trying to appeal to, to coal communities. And so I think that's the really the fundamental difference. Like other independents or teal candidates in other inner city seats around the country, Allegra Spender's campaign initially got some funding from Climate 200, which in turn is co-funded by millionaire Simon Holmes Accord. 
but Miss Bender says she was initially approached and is still supported by concerned Wentworth locals, who saw how independent Zali Stegall managed to snatch the coveted safe Liberal seat away from Tony Abbott in the 2019 election. I think there are a lot of parallels between Wentworth and Warringah um, because I think as communities, I think there's a real, there's similar concerns. There's a similar focus on the environment, similar focus on you know, a socially progressive agenda, but also similar focus on business and an expectation that the economy and, you know, government is managed, is managed well. Sitting Liberal member Dave Sharma won the seat from independent Karen Phelps in the 2019 election. The former diplomat is considered a more moderate Liberal. He crossed the floor during the all-night debate on the religious discrimination bill. But the MP has faced some scrutiny over his election materials, accused of using the famous teal colours and trying to mimic not only the look, but also the values of independence. Dave Sharma wasn't available for an interview for this story, but he did speak to Sky News about the controversy surrounding the Liberal candidate for Warringah, Catherine Deeves. I do disagree quite profoundly with what that candidate has had to say on social media and in, and in the past. I think it's been it's been wrong, it's been hurtful, it's been quite malicious in its time and I'm glad she's withdrawn those comments. Miss Steves has had to apologise over some of her Twitter posts where she called trans people surgically mutilated and sterilised, among other things. Dave Sharma is trying to distance himself from all of that. My track record on, on, on this and related issues of equality is, is quite clear and I've uh, always shown that I'm... I'm prepared to stand up against my colleagues and my party, if need be, on these issues. Dr Andrew Hughes from the Australian National University researches political campaigning and marketing. He says the controversy in Warringah could be damaging for the likes of Dave Sharma and other Liberals in more socially progressive seats. Speculation that um, that people are thinking about taking her out from the seat altogether and also not running anyone in that seat Um because in a way it just removes all that discussion around her as a candidate. It takes it away also from the Prime Minister's own record on this issue. It's probably a case where maybe they want to think about it because they've had a great first week on the campaign. But that momentum, you want to keep it. And a lot of individual um, seed polling, like in Warringah, like in Wentworth, is indicating that those candidates, um, the independent candidates, are likely to push all the way on preferences, if not perhaps take the seats. That's Dr Andrew Hughes from the Australian National University, ending that report from Catherine Gregory. In Queensland, one of the seats to watch is Brisbane. It's currently held by the Coalition with a margin of close to 5%. The seat takes in Brisbane's CBD and runs north to the airport and south to the Forex Brewery in Milton. Rachel Mealy takes a look. On the streets of Albion in inner Brisbane, people are out walking their dogs on this Easter Monday. There's one cafe open and there are a handful of people sitting at tables in the sunshine. Trevor Evans is the local member here. His electorate office is just across the road. Who are you going to vote for? Uh, Liberal. And Scott Morrison. Do you know who your local member is? No, because I just moved. I'll give you a clue. Troy Evans. Trevor, Trevor Evans, there you go. <laughs> There's your local member. So why are you going to vote Liberal? Always have. Do you think they've done a good job? I think they've done a good job in a hard 
environment, the situation. Brisbane was traditionally a Labor seat, held for many years by Labor stalwart Arch Bevis until a redistribution in 2010 saw the seat take in the wealthy conservative suburbs of Ascot and Clayfield and lose the traditionally Labor voting areas of Kedron and Stafford. Dr Paul Williams is a political commentator from Griffith University. Brisbane is uh, not too dissimilar from downtown Sydney, downtown Melbourne, downtown Adelaide. And uh, so given that it's, you know, it's inner city credentials, it's going to have a higher than average number of people who are well healed um, on high incomes. They are many, often double income, no kids, families. Um, they live in, in its, many of them in inner city apartments or, or terrace houses close to the CBD. And as a result, they are well healed. And, you know, obviously the, rent, the, uh, the rentals are high and the house prices are high. Like other inner city seats, the major parties will face a major challenge here from minor parties and independents. In fact, the Greens polled more than 22% of the primary vote in the 2019 election. That was close to Labor at 24%. The push against the major parties is a sentiment which wasn't hard to find on the streets of the electorate. Can I ask you, are you following the election closely? Um, sort of, it's driving me crazy, I'm hating it. Why? It's just, they're like children and there's so many really important issues out there and I just hit me, particularly when Scott Morrison speaks. And so how do you intend to vote this time? Um, Well, for the first time, I'd say I'm a pretty conservative voter, but I've actually really paid attention and said, well, I'm responsible for this too. So I'm probably going to go Greens because at least I think we need different voices. It's time for a different narrative. I'm really tempted to try and vote the, like the, well, not just the two major parties, but the four major parties um, as low as possible and then try and get some independence in. Um, It's the first time I've ever voted that way. Um, But I think that we need significant change and we need to stop this two-party system that we've been enduring for years. Labor's candidate is Madonna Jarrett, who's a former executive for Deloitte and who ran for a state Labor seat in the 1990s. Paul Williams says Trevor Evans has been a visible and effective local member, but he's got a fight on his hands. He has worked the electorate very well, very high visibility, uh, and uh, certainly kept it, you know, not put a foot wrong, not attracted headlines for the wrong reasons. So I would say he's been a very, well, more than an adequate member, but a very stable member. And uh, he's done everything that's been expected of him as an MP in a seat that, you know, has had a long Labor history. Um, I think he's been a um, worthy LNP successor to uh, Theresa Gambaro and, you know, in many senses made that seat his own. Voters in the seat of Brisbane have been a bit distracted of late. Many had their homes damaged in the recent floods. But Dr Williams says that shouldn't change anyone's vote. Issues around the flood would only probably confirm to those people who are already disposed to voting green that there is a problem in climate and we need to do something about it. It's hardly likely to push a, a, you know, a, a critical mass of swinging voters who might have been thinking about voting LNP or, or Labor into the Greens solely on, um, on environmental matters. Paul Williams says the seat of Brisbane is a tough contest to call. It, it, so it's really difficult to forecast how Mr Evans is going to go because the swing is not micro, it's not sitting on 0.5%, but at the same time, it's not on 9 or 10%. So it is eminently Labor that, uh, eminently possible that Labor can pick up the seat, but it's, um, you know, it's still a big ask for Labor. You'd still want to be Trevor Evans and the Labor candidate in that seat. 
That's Griffith University political commentator Dr Paul Williams there. Rachel Mealy with that report. ABC Radio right across the country on this Easter Monday. You're with us on The World Today. Well, it's been more than two years since a cruise ship has sailed through Sydney Heads thanks to a COVID ban on the industry. But the P&O Pacific Explorer is on the harbour today as she arrives in her home port after an 18,000-kilometre trip from Cyprus. The cruise industry is ready to take off again, but are travellers keen to get back on board? Carly Williams takes a look. Finally, a familiar sight has returned to sunny Sydney Harbour today. P&O's Pacific Explorer, the first cruise ship to enter the heads in more than two years, glides across the sparkling blue water, bannered with an enormous flag reading, We're Home. She's been guided to Circular Quay by tugboats spraying water cannons. It's not carrying passengers yet, but the staff are, well, ecstatic. The federal government banned cruise travel in March 2020 due to COVID. The local industry then put on hold in the wake of the deadly Ruby Princess debacle. P&O's David Jones says the Pacific Explorer's trip home from Cyprus is a sign the industry is ready to take off again. It's very significant uh, being the first. It really does uh, mark the start of the rebirth of uh, cruising in Australia. And uh, over coming months, you'll see more ships coming back. And that uh, increases the prospect now of there being a normal or pretty close to normal summer cruise season for 2022-23. Brisbane resident Leanne Warner is a huge cruise fan. She's been everywhere from the Pacific to the Mediterranean, Egypt, Cuba, the Baltic and Alaska. But her last time on a cruise ship was quite memorable. That was the 14th of March, I believe, and we were on the boat, on the ship, about to leave when they announced that, sorry, P&O had to stop um, sailing. And so the captain came over and said, I'm sorry to announce. And we all laughed and said, oh, they're cancelling it, you know, because of COVID. And that's exactly what he said. And we were so shocked. <laughs> but we had to either, we could stay the night or we could pack up and leave immediately. So obviously there was a lot of tears from people who had planned to go. So um, we just stayed the night. We had the best night ever. It was the best party night and left the next morning. Well, you, you were possibly on the, the last people on a P&O cruise we, ever. <laughs> we would have been. That is true. Leanne Warner is looking at booking a cruise from Africa to Italy for next year. And every time you get on a cruise boat, you know that there's a risk of rotavirus or one of those, you know. It's an enclosed area. And I guess I just feel that the cruise companies will be a lot more vigilant and I think we'll be more safe. Celebrity chef Luke Mangan has restaurants on P&O cruise ships. He says cruising's comeback will have a positive knock-on effect for multiple industries. It's, it's been hard for everyone. And, and if you think of the roll-on effect from um, you know, travel agents, the food producers and suppliers to all the restaurants and all the cruise ships. So it's affected everyone. But, uh, you know, we were the first to stop and we're the, the last back into, into it. So... Um, It'll be just good to, to be cruising again and have people on board. The tourism industry is now bracing for a surge in domestic cruise travel. 
Circular Key restaurant owner Stephen Duff says business is already starting to improve. Oh, it's a terrific. There's people out everywhere. It's a, it's a great feeling. So it's, it's been a long time coming there. I mean, there's still lots of empty stores between the Opera House and the Rocks after the two years. So it just shows you how tough it's been. But uh, we're all very excited and uh, trying to gear up for it. There's a queue at the door right now, so it's terrific. But it's not smooth sailing for every business connected to the cruise industry. Fiona Altman is a third-generation Opal specialist and sells Opals at Circular Key. The cruise ship market is very limited now as most of the clients on board are mostly Australians. It's always been a little bit difficult for me in Sydney as we're what we call a turnaround port with more Australians being on board. They're actually getting off the ship and getting on, jumping onto the train to head home with them. Um, yeah, the cruise market majority being Australian and domestic market. So you're not capturing a lot of that market because Aussies don't want to buy opals as much as the international folks? That would be correct. Now, no, not Australians just aren't my clients. That's Fiona Altman there, ending that report from Carly Williams. Finally today, it's been a challenging Easter for thousands of Northern Rivers residents who are still picking up the pieces after last month's flooding. The New South Wales government is hoping more temporary accommodation will provide some relief, but locals say it's only a fraction of what's needed. Matt Bamford reports. Looking around the Lismore showground, Marcus Bebb is feeling grateful for having a roof over his head. It's quiet. It's it's nice. We've got Lifeline here. We've got the washing machines here, as in Orange Sky. It's it's nice for considering considering what we're going through and what the situation is and everything. Um, a lot worse situations I could be in. His family of four has been living in a caravan since floodwater ripped through their Lismore property last month. Marcus Bebb's not sure when he'll be able to leave. At this stage, it's it's unsure. Uh, just in regards to what's actually going on with our property, we've got um, structural integrity issues that we're trying to sort out. Um, So at this stage, even if they do decide to fix it, it's going to be 12 months, two years before we're looking at back at that, back at inside the house at least anyway. It's a reality for thousands of Northern Rivers residents whose homes have been damaged or destroyed by flooding. Some 3,800 properties have been deemed unlivable. The New South Wales government is stepping up its efforts to house people. It's sending up to 2,000 temporary homes to the flood-hit region at a cost of $350 million. Marcus Bebb says it'll make a difference. For the housing situation, it's brilliant. But like um, a few other things that have been thrown around at the area at the moment, it's how they do it and, and the logistics behind it. The modular homes will be set up in places like the Wallingbar Sports Field, about 20 minutes east of Lismore. Darren Bridge, whose Lismore home was also destroyed in the floods, reckons the homes will help, but he'd prefer to be closer to the house he's rebuilding. Uh, it's great news. Uh, I, I don't know if people are going to want to live a long way away from where their houses are, um, if they need to be, you know, you know, rebuilding and stuff. But obviously, it's great news. Is it something that you're considering? This, this would be a, it would be a great fix for me if I could if I could have have some accommodation right next to my house while I'm building. If I'm too far away from the house, it's just not practical. He's worried the community could suffer. The thing about Lismore is the community, and the thing that holds Lismore together is the people. And for us to be dispersed out of the t- out of the town, what we're trying to build is a little bit counterproductive. Marcus Bebb says most people don't want to spend months living in a camp. But then you've got the same issues that what we've had in the last few weeks with internet access, services, um, you know, they're going to have water and power out there. But then you get the isolation side of um, the effect also. 
um, where my my circumstances and my opinion is, is these modular homes, I should be able to put one on my driveway. Same with the motorhomes that Resilience New South Wales sent up. Or, you know, instead of going to a camp, I should be able to set it up on my driveway, be able to look after my house. Janelle Safin is the state member for Lismore. She says more temporary homes is a start. Look, I, I welcome it. And, you know, I welcome every announcement, every dollar. And we also need to parallel that and hopefully in the budgets that there is a proper housing program for the Northern Rivers. She'd like to see a reconstruction commission set up to better coordinate the response. We also need to give people certainty about, you know, going back to their homes and we need that program of voluntary house raising, voluntary house purchase and land swaps. Queensland got that package. It was announced with the federal and state. We need it here. The Reconstruction Commission I've called for would be tasked with pulling all of this together. Neil Dennison has been living with friends since his house was flooded in Pimlico near Ballina. Waiting for his insurance claim, he's already considering ways to make his home more flood resistant. We don't particularly want to move. We've been there for over 30 years now and we're, we're happy where we are, but I mean, it'll, it'll probably be a requirement anyway if we do rebuild, but we'll have to build up. So we're looking at putting a house three metres up, three metres up in the air, make sure that if this happens again, at least the house will be safe, even if the ground underneath isn't. Any government support for a more permanent solution is welcome. And if people want to stay living in the area, well, they're going to have to, um, you know, adjust to the fact that this is going to happen and, and really they should get assistance from the government. That's Northern Rivers resident Neil Dennison there, ending that report from Matt Bamford. That's all from the World Today team for this Easter Monday. I'm Sally Sarath. Take care. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. There are more than 700,000 or one in 35 Australians of Indian origin. But at this election, both parties want their vote. Today, the ABC South Asia correspondent, Avani Dias, on Scott Morrison's move to recognise university degrees of Indian migrants. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listen app. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.